0: So as most of you know our church is in this process of um, looking for a different facility to house us for for worship and to be a home base for uh, our our community as a church and what that's meant is like i've been looking at a lot of properties and looking at a lot of different churches in particular and i'm just loving like no we haven't found the one yet but i I just am loving meeting different churches and like seeing the different emphasis and the beautiful kind of kaleidoscope of of different congregations because each congregation sort of has an identity and a personality. Uh, some are, are growing, some are shrinking, some are uh, big into evangelism or worship or discipleship. It's just really cool to see all of the different emphases and, and, and the diversity of, of types of churches out there. It's given me a fresh appreciation for just how beautiful And how strange church is. Like, have you ever just, maybe if you've gone to church or been part of a church a long time, you just, you know, you don't notice it as much. But if you're, like, if you're visiting today, like, it's weird. I bless you double for coming to a different church or to a church at all. Because it is weird when I think about what we do. Like, in 21st century Bellingham, where else do you get groups of people who come and hang out on a weekly basis who aren't relatives who aren't necessarily friends, like, who aren't like coworkers or, or fellow students at school? Where else do you get groups of people that come in and then actually sing out loud together? Um, besides choirs and stuff, like, that's just a weird thing. We listen to, to sermons that are not just for information, like a TED Talk, but like we, we claim we're trying to submit ourselves to the text. That's different. Where else do you get a community where the initiation right is to take a person and submerge them underwater? <laughs> or to have dinner with a person who we say rose from the dead and commune with him mysteriously? I mean, this is a weird thing we do, this church thing. And it ought to be weird. It ought to be weird. It's different. Because Jesus calls the church... He calls this little micro-community of the world out from the world in order to be a new community, his new community, a community that reflects the way of Jesus back into the world. In our sermon text this evening, we're going to encounter the seeds of a new community of Jesus. And we're gonna uncover three essential aspects of that community. I'm just gonna tip you off to what they are. The new community is called by Jesus. The new community is sent by Jesus. And the new community is centered on or dependent on Jesus. Don't worry, I'm coming back to all of that. But before I just start there, kind of like cold, let me just take a moment to orient us into the story. We find ourselves this evening in the third chapter of Mark's Gospel. And it's been a whirlwind of activity so far. Jesus has come into Galilee proclaiming the arrival of the reign of God. And as we've been observing walking through Mark's Gospel, one of Mark's favorite words is the adverb immediately. Like everything seems to be in a hurry in Mark's Gospel. Jesus is on the move, gathering disciples, teaching, healing, forgiving sin, doing battle with the evil one, releasing humans from spiritual bondage and oppression. And wherever Jesus goes, immediately, 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 there the kingdom of God or the reign of God is. And at the same time, wherever Jesus goes, there's also conflict, resistance, and tension The forces of evil are not happy when the reign of God begins to break in to the world. And even the religious leaders, people who who seek and love and serve God, they have problems with Jesus because he doesn't look like, talk like, or behave like the Messiah that they had expected. And so while Jesus is doing the work of God on earth, God's priests and God's Bible scholars and religious zealots are plotting to kill him. And that's where we pick up the story this evening. Let's see, let's see how others respond to Jesus. I'm in Mark 3, verse 7, and I'm gonna go through 19. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumaea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard all that he was doing, and they came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him, for he had healed many with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You're the Holy One of God! You are the Son of God! And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those who he himself wanted and they came to him, and he appointed 12, so that he would be, that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach, and to have authority, and to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12, Simon, who he appointed, uh, gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them, he also gave the nickname Bonerges, uh, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. One of the things I love about Scripture that I hope you catch, if you don't already have it, is that it is just so interesting. And multi layered. Take the passage I just read as an example. At a basic level, just a cursory reading, it's pretty obvious what's going on. In verse 6, which is the verse before the one I read, the Pharisees went out and immediately, there's that word again, began conspiring with the Herodians against Jesus how they might destroy him. And So Jesus in our passage withdraws to the sea with his disciples which makes sense He is kind of getting a little hot where he was people are trying to kill him and so he withdraws. He goes to the seaside And while he's at the seaside crowds of people were coming to him and he was healing them He's casting out demons and some of these demons were falling down before Jesus and they're saying you're the son of God Now, on the surface, we have a story that makes logical sense. Jesus withdraws to the sea to get some distance between him and the religious leaders. But then there's there's another layer below that one, and that is the layer of irony. You see it? The ones who know the scriptures the best, the religious leaders, the ones who claim to love God, they want to kill Jesus. They want to commit murder. Then you've got the crowds. The crowds who are a little bit more open to Jesus, aren't they? At least they they recognize that he can heal them and change their lives. and It's not quite worship, and it's not quite recognition that Jesus is the Son of God, but it's an openness, and so the crowds are coming to Jesus, and they're more open. These common people are more open to Jesus than the religious leaders are. But then look at the irony of the Demons. Spirits of evil who have rebelled openly against God, they actually fall down before Jesus, not out of, like, worship, but out of recognition that a greater authority is in their presence. And they shriek out, you are the Son of God. And isn't it ironic that the religious leaders who know the scriptures are least interested in Jesus, and the demons themselves actually recognize his true identity. So on the surface, we've got Jesus withdrawn to the sea to put some distance between him and those trying to kill him. And at a deeper level, we see some irony that, that the further people seem to get from super religious zealousness, the more open they are to see who Jesus really is. The point being, of course, for Mark's Hearers and readers that's that's us now So what do we do with Jesus? How do we respond to Jesus? Now let me just tease out a third layer of meaning It's hidden from us in most of our English translations and I'm not gonna do the nerd thing where I just give you a bunch of Greek words and you nod along but let me just let me just retranslate into English using a very literal Greek to English translation, and I think it will point it out to you. So this first part's the standard. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, also from Judea, from Jerusalem, from Idumea, from beyond the Jordan. I'm gonna say all those names, but what you need to know, because you probably don't study ancient geography, is those places represent north, south, east, and west. And when you say north, south, east, and west, in Hebrew thinking, you're talking about the whole world. Representation of the whole world. So, so people from all over the world are coming to Jesus. And it continues. He told his disciples that a boat should stand by ready for him because of the crowd. And the words that they actually use are these. So that they would not crush him or smash him. For he had healed many with the result that all those who had been healed of their afflictions, afflictions that had lashed them or scourged them, that's the word used for their afflictions, they pressed around him. Literally the word for pressed around him is that they fell on him or attacked him with aggression because they wanted to be around him. And so Jesus had to get on a boat to protect himself from being crushed by the crowds who wanted to touch him and be healed and to take from him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down and violently shriek, you are the son of God. And he ordered them to shut up and to not tell anyone who he was. This is actually a really violent scene. Not in a nasty way, but Mark is using violent language to describe this scene. Now here's why I think it's important. So interesting to me that in Isaiah 53, we have a prophecy of God's mysterious servant who will one day come and take on the afflictions of the world, one who would be crushed for our transgressions and die in our place. Isn't it interesting that in this story, Jesus, the one who eventually fulfills Isaiah 53 on the cross, Jesus is converged upon, crushed upon by crowds of people from geographical areas that represent north, south, east, and west, symbolically meaning all of humanity coming upon him. And then you also have submission of the evil one, the demons falling before him. It's almost as if this story were some sort of preview or foreshadowing of the death and resurrection of Jesus, who took on our infirmities, was crushed for our transgressions in order to grant us healing and new life. It's so good. I mean, it's like, okay, I just sit down. I just preach the gospel. I mean, it's so cool. All that's like hidden in these layers of, so I just, go Bible study, okay. Um, the story gets a lot richer, though. Let's continue on. Jesus goes up to uh, the mountain um, from, from the crowds and they, they come up and many who he's already called to follow him, uh, many who are already his disciples, um, he, he calls them up on this mountain and he chooses 12 to kind of form a special team. Now let me just pause for a moment. Amy just read Exodus 19. And in that scripture reading, uh, God had already rescued Israel from Egypt, from slavery and oppression in Egypt. And the Exodus narrative makes it clear that their slavery in Egypt wasn't just to Pharaoh or to their human taskmasters, But it was also a spiritual oppression. And that's part of the significance of the ten plagues, is that God isn't just choosing like random like gnats and That's just weird, right? Like, but he's going to battle with the the gods and goddesses of Egypt themselves. And in showing himself time and time again that he's superior, that he's the true God. And so people are free from Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness, but they're not truly free. Because they haven't formed a covenant yet with God. And so in Exodus 19, Yahweh goes up on the mountain and he calls the Israelites to himself in his grace and mercy and he forms a relationship with them. And he calls them to be his special people that he will bless so that their lives in turn will be a blessing to the world. Pointing the nations to the glory, to the goodness of God. Okay, so now, we're knees deep into this story where Jesus had been releasing prisoners from physical and spiritual oppression. Then he goes up, not on a mountain, but Mark says he goes up on the mountain. Now, Jesus is in Galilee, or, you know, Israel. The mountain in Exodus 19 is in Sinai. Like, a long way, away. He's not saying that Jesus teleported and went up the mountain, but by saying the mountain, if you're an Israelite, and your main story is Exodus, what are you thinking of? You're thinking, ah, oh, this, this is just like what Moses did. This is just like what God did. So he goes up on, on the mountain, and he chooses 12 people, and he calls them by name, and sometimes he gives them nicknames, new names, like Simon becomes Peter, which means like, be like calling somebody Rocky, or you know Stone, which isn't a great nickname, but anyway. Um, but more important than the actual like, people, because if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, like, you get a little bit variations on the list of 12. It's not so much important of like, the exact people, but the symbolic nature of the number 12. Because there's 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus is starting a new community, not to replace Israel, but to fulfill her role and to begin a new chapter in God's story. The story of Mark 3 contains the seeds of a new community that's going to become the church. But even before the death and resurrection of Jesus, even before the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, on the followers of Jesus, we we see three essential aspects of this new community. And I think they're important to us because they're still essential for the church today. The first one is that the new community or the church is called by Jesus chosen by Jesus. Recognizing that we're called by Jesus as a new community has always been essential. But I wonder, not really wonder, I'm pretty convinced that it's so important for us to to address that concept in today's day and age. Because we are living in a time and a place that so values our personal autonomy and freedom of choice, and doing what we want when we want it, that it is easy to forget the mysteries of God. In our mechanical, kind of materialist world, we live as though we are masters of our choices. Like, if I asked you, honestly, first thing that came to your mind, why are you here this evening? Why are you here this evening? You might say, well, because I wanted to worship God. Or maybe you're thinking, um, I want to be around people who are for me. It feels good to be part of a community. Or or maybe, just super honest, maybe you're like, I was on the schedule to volunteer (laughs) Um, and I I needed to come. Or if I'm super honest, I'm sort of like on staff here and I'm, I'm preaching today, so I better be here, you know? So like, but all of those answers are because I wanted to or I needed to or I had to. And that's just one part of the equation. My point is that we almost never answer questions about why we do what we do by pointing to our, our, we we always point to our will, or our decision, or our agency. But agency, and will, and intent, it's only one part of the equation. I love soccer. (laughs) I love soccer. If I wanted to play for the Seattle Sounders, and I used my agency to show up at their practice and to say, coach, put me in, and to try out for the team at 48 years old and no talent, Um, (laughs) I wouldn't make it out of the parking lot. Like, security would probably get me before I could even get on the pitch. Why? I mean, why why would they resist me? I have agency, I have will, I have intent. (laughs) Yeah, but I wasn't called. I wasn't chosen. I wasn't invited by the sounders. Now, why am I here? Uh, why am I part of the church? Why are we part of this new community of Jesus? Fundamentally, we are here because we're invited. Called. Chosen. Jesus made a way for you to be here. Yes, we responded. Yes, uh, we make choices to remain committed. But it is primarily the love of Jesus, the invitation of Jesus, the initiative of Jesus that makes being part of his family and his new community possible at all. I, even as I say that, and I've been prepping this all week, I'm like, oh. I wouldn't be here unless I wanted, you know what I mean? Like, it's just so ingrained in our culture. Like, don't give me that mumbo jumbo. I'm here because I want to be here and I chose it. Yeah, you, you think that. Make no mistake, right? Like, God so loved the world that he sent his only son to rescue the world. And he calls uh, us because he loves us. And it's true that he loves everyone and that not everyone's going to respond to him. But if you are here... It is because of the love of Jesus fundamentally calling you, caring for you, drawing you to himself. So you want a spiritual practice for Lent? Try recognizing Jesus' love for you. Receive it without reservation. Consider that he calls you and loves you without qualification. Qualification. In fact, I think it's part uh, of the point of these particular disciples that he called that some of them never even show up in the later stories. And, And most of the ones that do show up in the later stories end up failing Jesus or betraying Jesus or doing other things that they're ashamed of. Because it's the love and calling of Jesus that makes us part of the new community, not our performance. It was true for the original guys, and it's true for us as well. And that's a great grace. The second essential element of the new community or the church is that we are sent by Jesus. We're chosen and called and we're sent. Jesus calls us and we are sent out as we are. Jesus so loves the world that he calls us, his his new community, he calls us, his church, to share that love with other people. And lots of times, we fall into the trap of thinking that that means, whew, I'm repping Jesus out there. And that means I've gotta be really good. And then people will think well of me and will think well of Jesus. And that's certainly true sometimes. Please don't be a jerk out there, people. But the deeper witness of the church is and has always been in our weakness. It's always been in our weakness. Jesus empowers flawed, weak people, because that's frankly the only type of people that there are. And he sends out the 12 to preach the good news of Jesus, to cast out demons, to free people from spiritual oppression. And he sent them out sort of as an advance team to declare the reign of God and to model that life could be different with Jesus in it. And Jesus empowers us through the Holy Spirit to sometimes by giving us special gifts, like, like preaching and teaching or healing or prophecy. Sometimes he gives gifts of prayer and faith, or grace in worship, or grace in administration. But you know what? Jesus also empowers us by showing us how our passions and how our personalities how our talents can be used to bless other people. How our friending and parenting, neighboring and childing, being a child, like all, of the, all those relationships that we, we have already, God can empower us to be a blessing to others in those. And I think one of the most powerful witnesses of Jesus' reign is when his new community, when his church is transparent and authentic with humility about our need for forgiveness and grace. One of the biggest turnoffs to the church is when the world sees us as arrogant and overconfident and judgmental and self-righteous. You know, Jesus never calls us or empowers us or expects us to be morally perfect or to win every argument. But he does call us to point people to him by sharing our need for him, our need for forgiveness, our need for grace. Which leads us to the third and final essential element of the church or the new community in Christ. And that's that the new community is centered on or dependent on Jesus. Jesus. I think one of the greatest gifts that Jesus gave us by choosing those disciples that we read about in the Bible is that without a doubt, this new community is fundamentally rooted and grounded in our relationship with Jesus. In the Bible, Jesus has called together some hot-headed fishermen, tax collectors, A couple of people with Greek names hinting that they may not be ritually pure according to the customs and culture of the day. Jesus even calls Judas, who would betray him to death at one point. There is no way that this group could be the new community of Jesus without Jesus. And neither can we. Jesus is the glue that holds the community together. He's the source to our life together, our power for mission, the reason we gather, the one we worship. He is our Savior and King, and there just is no church with any power without Jesus. This healthy realization that Jesus is the center of the community and not us leads us to two important directions. The first is that we need to take seriously that there's sin in the church. That often surprises us. Like when we see headlines or you, know, you, you, you get mistreated by someone in the church, when I make a mistake in your life and you think, that shouldn't happen. There are Christians. Come on, it shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise us. Sin in the church isn't something that should surprise us but it's also not something we should just gloss over and easily accept. We'd love to think that everyone who follows Jesus would be safe and holy and ethically sound above reproach, but we need to help each other to live that way. Churches without boundaries, without structures of checks and balances invite secrecy and corruption and abuse of power and that tarnishes the reputation of Jesus, and it hurts people, people he loves. Last weekend, um, Corey Hager and I, uh, Corey's our treasurer, we attended this all-day financial seminar put on by our, our denomination down in Tacoma. You can thank us later. And in that training, which taught us things about taxes and budgeting and how to record things in QuickBooks, and I kind of glossed over because I'm not good at any of that, we had a whole chapter on fraud in the church, how to prevent fraud. And unfortunately, fraud's like a real thing that happens all over the world and in churches. Thankfully, the training only affirmed that our system of checks and balances here at Lettered Streets is, is good, but it's always a good reminder for us to always strive for transparency and accountability in all that we do. We need to help each other and not assume that nothing bad will ever happen. That's why Jen and Christy have us do darkness to light training so that we can prevent uh, assault against minors and, and the weak and the vulnerable in our church. And uh, Anyway, it could go on and on. The second direction that this leads, so the first one is we've got to take sin in the church honestly. The second direction leads us to encourage us to pursue an honest relationship with Jesus. You know, Jesus, he knows who we are. But many of us, I would say all of us to some degree, have a really hard time presenting our true selves to him. We find it easier to pray. I'll just... Use the pronoun I. I find it easier to pray and worship and serve and read the Bible when I feel like I'm doing well in life. Maybe you resonate with that. But when I slip up and do things I'm ashamed of, I meet meet resistance inside about the idea of coming to Jesus, praying to Jesus, reading his word. Do you resonate with that? It's ironic that at the time we need him the most, the time when we've made mistakes, the time when we need forgiveness is the time when we most resist him. And the reality is that there's a little bit of Judas in every one of us. We all have good intentions, but we don't often find, or we often find that the the spirit might be willing, but the flesh is weak. And the new community of Jesus, the church, We're we're called not to be a community of outward appearances, but of depth, honesty, reality, grace. Hear the good news you are called by Jesus, chosen, noticed by Him, loved by Him. When you respond to being chosen, Jesus empowers you, equips you, sends you, makes you an agent of his grace. Whether you just started walking with Jesus or you've been walking with him a long time, you can be an agent of his grace in the world. And he has not left us alone. The new community of Jesus is one that depends on him, is honest with him, trusts him, and finds life in him. Today is a way of response. We have um, our healing prayer time. Leslie White and I are gonna be at these two kneeling benches, and we would love to pray for you if you have something um, physical, spiritual, emotional you would like prayer for. Maybe it's a response to something here. Um, So you could come forward, there will be some music playing, uh, or you can remain where you're at, pray with someone next to you, or maybe you just need some silent time to, to process what you've heard, feel free to receive this as a gift of space and time uh, to pray.